It is a joy to be with you this morning. Uh, open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5. As uh, a brief introduction, uh, as Jake said, my name is Jonathan Davis. I've got uh, six kids, three teenagers and three toddlers. Please pray for me. Uh, we are blessed and have been living here in Waverly since 2018. And I bring greetings to you from Cedar Heights Baptist Church in Cedar Falls, Iowa. Uh, it's where we attend, and uh, we want to bring greetings to you. We are co-heirs in the imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept-in-heaven-for-you inheritance together. Your sister church, other believers around the world share this commonality with us. That's how Peter opens the text, the, the letter of First Peter, to the churches in Asia. And uh, it's, it's a reality that sometimes we forget. But I hope through today's message it'll be something that we can be reminded of. We're going to be reading First Peter 5. I'm going to start at 5 and go through 11. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for this day. I thank you for the opportunity of, of opening your word together, of remembering who we are, remembering who you are. We praise you for your servant Peter, who wrote this letter inspired by the Holy Spirit to help us even today. So I pray now that as we look into this text, that you would help us to see ourselves more clearly, that you would help us to see you more clearly. Give us grace, Father, for that now. Help me to be an effective communicator. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So as it was mentioned, today is Independence Day. This is a big deal. The 4th of July, we, we celebrate this country's independence from its past tyrannical hold under King George III. And while we do celebrate that and the freedoms that it grants to us, I'm hoping to shift the perspective on that reality just slightly to help us to see a little bit more, to help us to see some glorious truths from the Bible. So to begin today, we're going to briefly look at verse 5. Then we'll move into our text of 6 through 11. And what I want us to see here is that the command to the entire body of believers, that includes us, is humility, is to be humble. 
that's important for our passage today because verse 6 begins with an explanation of what clothing ourselves with humility looks like. And then it offers a reason for it. So if you're a note taker and you need an outline, this is what it looks like. First of all, the question is, what is it we do? And then the second question we'll get to later is, what does God do? So we're going to begin with what it is that we do. But it's important to remember that this, this sense of life in the community that is, is talked about in this passage is the second part of two bookends. At the beginning of his letter, Peter's talking about the same thing. He's saying we are one in Christ. We are together in this struggle, in this travel of our hearts uh, in, as we're, we're working toward uh, a righteous life, uh, toward a life of community in Christ together. This is what he's talking about. So the, the theme of the whole book of 1 Peter is standing firm in God's grace and what that looks like in, in community. So that implicit message is seen throughout the whole letter. It's explicitly explained here at the end. So Peter's offering his final encouragement in this letter to these young Asia minor churches, these, a bunch of church plants. Anybody familiar with a church plant? Sometimes encouragement is needed. Peter wants you to be encouraged today. So this is his letter to the, these churches and to us. So we're going to start by answering the question, what we're supposed to do, and then ask what God does. So our first question, what do we do? It's outlined by Peter in verses 6 through 9. He's going to give three commands or, or imperatives. First, we see the command to humble yourself in verses 6 through 7. And then verse 8 says to be sober-minded and watchful. And then finally, verse 9, the command to resist the devil. So what we do, number one, humble yourselves. We read verse in verse 5, humility towards one another is supposed to be our default mode. Peter is encouraging the church to be humble to one another. It's not just a command for those of us who are under leadership to be humble to the leadership, to the elders of the church. It's not just that. It's also that the leaders are to be humble with the body as well. We are all supposed to be humble with one another. It's horizontally and vertically, this is a humility reality that we need to, to face. So if we're not humble, what's the opposite of humble? Prideful. The opposite of humble is prideful. And God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So the command, because of all this, is all of us to humble ourselves. And then it tells us the manner. This is the position of humility. Going low. Submitting to one another. Not only will we be humble to one another, but humble ourselves to God as well. And it only stands to reason. If we're supposed to humble ourselves to one another, what would then our position with the creator of the universe be? Well, also humble. Also humble. Peter just spent the last four and a half chapters of this book, of this letter, talking about how in the midst of suffering... We should not be afraid, but rather to have faith. See, believing that God is who he says he is. Because God is strong, right? 
And here we are supposed to clothe ourselves with humility, making it part of who we are, because our strong God will protect us with his mighty hand. I love that description of, of God, his mighty hand. In the New Testament, we don't see that description, but in the Old Testament, it's almost always used to describe the hand of the Lord related to the Exodus. This is how the Lord will bring you out of Egypt, with a mighty hand, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. That capable, mighty hand that brought a million plus people out of Egypt that sustained them through the wilderness. If he's able to, and capable to do that for Israel, is he not able and capable to do it for us as well? Think about what a humble position looks like. Be like kneeling, right? Humbling ourselves. Why do you think men get down, down on one knee when they ask women for their hand in marriage? It's humble. It says, I'm going to let you have your way. Here I am, trusting you. Will you? So now we look at the purpose for this. Why do we need to humble ourselves? Why do we need to clothe ourselves with humility? This is, this is, in my mind, I think about this as like the carrot, okay? Maybe, maybe you think in these same kind of terms. Uh, for, for the kids, do your parents ever do this to you? They, they hold something out to you as an as a enticement to get you to do something that they want you to do? Does that ever happen? Yeah? Pick up your toys for my toddlers so you can have a snack, Get your homework done so that you can use the car. This is the, the, the carrot on the end of the stick. The thing that gets the donkey to move forward, stubborn donkey, let the reader understand, is to be enticed by this carrot. The independence that the car offers is the carrot for a teen. The, the, uh, the snack is the carrot for the toddlers to, to do their cleaning. The donkey starts to move hope forward in hopes of getting the carrot that's on the string, only our God doesn't keep it out there on the string. He actually gives it to us. So and I'm, I'm a stubborn person. This is a really relatable concept for me. I need sometimes compulsion to help me to move, to do the right thing. Sometimes we think of compulsion in negative terms also, like clean your room or, or else, right? Or else something bad that you don't want to happen. Get your homework done or you're not going anywhere this weekend. There's a phrase from John Owen that says, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Compulsion here is to avoid being killed by sin. We have to drag ourselves away from temptation, kicking and screaming sometimes, saying, don't go there. And here in verse 6, humility has an, a compulsion. It has an incentive, and Peter is explaining it. He's saying, humble yourself in order that at the proper time, 
God will exalt you. So what does this exaltation come? When does it come? It comes at the proper time. This is not to be an encouragement for us to look forward to being exalted tomorrow. This is not a compulsion to humble ourselves so that at the at next week, God will exalt us. No, he's talking about the end times. It's a pointer to eternity. This is a bigger deal than what you're looking forward to tomorrow or next week. This is about eternity. And that's important to keep in perspective. When he reveals his glory fully, we will be exalted. The foreshadowing of God's glory in Christ is the down payment. He's saying, look, I'm going to do it with Christ. I'm going to exalt him as proof that I can exalt you too. If he can do it with the greatest treasure, then he can do it with smaller. God God exalted Christ in the resurrection. He will exalt us in the end. And that's what he's saying here. But not only now, listen to, to Luke 14, 7 through 11. Now, this is Jesus, and he's telling a parable to those who were invited to this wedding feast. When he noticed how they chose the place of, of honor, he said to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come to you and say, Give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. I got to see this firsthand. A couple months ago, my oldest daughter, Abigail, got married, and at the wedding, uh, my dad came to, to help me with some things. I had to rent a sound system and get it all set up, and he's an expert at these things, and I invited him to come along and help me get things going, and so we got things going, and then at the wedding, he thought he was going to be running sound. I said, Dad, no. No, I got a much better place for you. You are grandfather of the bride. There's a seat of honor for you up at the front where you get to not have to run sound, you get to witness this exciting situation firsthand. Jesus used this parable to show what pridefulness looks like. This kind of pridefulness sneaks up on us and it catches us off guard, but we're called to be humble. We are called to, to humble ourselves. We have to humble ourselves. Listen to that last statement that Jesus made again. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So it sounds like humility is going to happen, and it's either going to happen by us doing it to ourselves, or it's going to happen to us, right? We either do it actively, or it's going to be done upon us. Those who are haughty speak highly of themselves, They don't consider others. They are selfish, vain, self-important, conceited, narcissist, egomaniacs, haughty, snobs. Not like anybody in this room, of course. But other people. They will all be brought 
low. And it'll be done against their will. Their will is to stand up against God with pride. But we're called to be humble. We were watching TV the other day, and uh, Hulu has got this British version of Wipeout. Do you guys remember Wipeout? Remember these very loud and eccentric people trying to go through a massive obstacle course? The, the most iconic is these giant red balls, and they're already covered with mud, and they have to jump across these balls, which I, I don't know that anybody ever has. I've never seen it happen. They always fall down between the first and second, and they just get bounced around like a rag doll before they fall into more mud. That's, that's what I think of. I think about wipeout, about being humbled. There's this one obstacle they sometimes have, and it's this giant sweeping arm just going in a circle around and around and around. And they have to cross this bridge that this thing is sweeping across. And it's at just the right height to catch him in the back of the knees. What happens when you get caught in the back of the knees? You go down to your knees. They are humbled against their will by that big sweeping arm. And the prideful will be humbled by God. Remember the passage in Isaiah By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me, every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall swear allegiance. Some knees are made to bow. So this is what living out the fear of God is all about. Holy reverence. It's a life of humility. Nothing can stand up against the mighty hand of God. All will be knocked down. Then verse 7 begins with this participle. Sometimes it looks like, depending on translation, it looks like another command, but it's a participle. It describes the manner in which we humble ourselves. He says, casting all your anxieties on him, verse 7, because he cares for you. These are the worries of life that weigh us down. I got to admit, this week has, has been a hard one for me. The worries of life have been weighing my, myself down. And, and it took me, as I was studying this passage, till Thursday to realize that's where I was at. I'm studying this word, and it took me till Thursday to realize my own heart and my pridefulness. The things we care about so much burden our hearts, they distract us from life. These are the complications that get in the way. Maybe it's a a family member, uh, a broken down car, a job, a bad habit. God wants it all. He cares for us, and he has a mighty hand. Think about the gravity of this reality. Here's God, his mighty hand, and he speaks the world into existence. And then... He says to you, give me your concerns. Let me take that off your shoulders. This is the help that we need. This is the faith that we need to exercise. Problems that are bigger than we are require us to look for a solution greater than we are. And there is no solution greater than him. 
And that's the way we have to approach our sin, our frustrations, the things that depress us. We take it along with all our problems in life and we gotta take it to the foot of the cross and lay him down. Cast all your anxieties on him for he cares for you. Jesus died for all these things. He cares for all of us and he wants our anxieties. Now verse eight. The second thing that we're supposed to do, be sober-minded and watchful. Now, back in chapter 1, verse 13, Peter used this same phrase, being sober-minded. It's a kind of spiritual alertness, being aware. Peter's saying to us, being sober-minded is another way of being ready mentally, and he's showing us that this is a manner in which we are setting our hope fully on the grace of that coming time and he's repeating it here and this time he adds something to it and he also says be watchful why answer because your adversary the devil is seeking someone to devour he wants to catch you with your guard down there isn't a time in life when we're not susceptible to the attacks from the evil one satan is at work and i think about that word prowl sneaking around right Waiting, waiting for the opportune moment, my weakness. The lion, right? Strong animal, king of the jungle, right? Paws, nine to 12 inches wide, okay? One swipe could decapitate a guy like me. That's crazy. But you see the contrast between how God is described and how the enemy, the devil, is described. God is a protector with a mighty hand who wants to help us. The devil is a prowling lion who seeks to devour and destroy. And he's the one we need protection from. God not only wants to protect us, but he wants to take our other cares and anxieties off our shoulders and offer us real freedom in them, free from the fear of devil, free from our own anxiety, our own depression, our own struggles. Not only does God protect against the devil's attacks, but God also gives when the devil takes away, as we'll see in the last thing in this list of things that we are to do. So this third thing is resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that at the same time, kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. This third answer for what we're to do is to resist, is fighting the fight of faith. Resist. Resist. Firm in your faith. We resist, and the way we resist is by standing firm in our faith. So the next logical question is, where does this faith come from? Good news. It's on sale at Hy-Vee. You can get some in the meat department. Five bucks a pound is a really good deal. Unfortunately, no. It's not how it works, right? We can't just go out and pick up some faith somewhere. We can't gin it up inside of us. I can't give you any of mine, and you can't share yours with me. But together, we have it because it's a gift from God. He's the one who gives that gift, the gift of faith to believe. It's him working in us. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved 
through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Believing isn't something we can do on, we, on our own. Faith is what you get when God opens your eyes. And if God hasn't opened your eyes yet, then the best thing to do is in your desperation to seek him and ask him to open your eyes and to grant that gift of faith that only he can give. That only he gives and is the only way for us to resist the devil, to stand firm in the faith that God gives. So those of us that do have faith, we stand in that faith and we surround ourselves with it. That's one reason memorizing God's word is so important. We need to be doing this on a regular basis, planting that word in us to remind us of what we already know is true so that when those trials and temptations and struggles come, we can remind ourselves of the truth to point our hearts back to Christ, to rely on the Holy Spirit, to give us strength. So that moment comes and we can say, hey, I know God always keeps his promises. And he promised in Isaiah 41.10 to strengthen me, to help me, and uphold me with his righteous right hand. I can stand. I can stand and resist because I don't have to fear. God told us not to fear, not to be dismayed. I'm going to continue to walk in faith. And devil, you can prowl around all you want because my God has a mighty hand. And he's going to protect me. That's his promise. And I know I can get back up again because God will strengthen me. And we know we're not alone. This is part of living as a community of faith. It's not just me in my faith. It's all of you in your faith as well. It's Cedar Heights Baptist Church in their faith joining together with you. We rely on each other. So when I stumble, I can remember God's word. I can remember Patrick Ray up in Minneapolis standing in faith serving. I can remember Pastor Aaron and Jake standing in faith too. I know my church family is standing in faith. I'm going to call up Luke and be encouraged by him. I'm going to send a message to Grace, and she's going to encourage me. We're going to stand firm in our faith together. We have so much incredible means of communication right now than have ever existed. We can redeem this technology for God's glory by using it to help us be pointed back to him and to point one another back to him. What an incredible God we serve. What an encouragement. So now to the second question, what God does. So what does God do? We've already touched on it. Peter's going to reinforce it for us. 5.10, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So as we've already said, our hope is in him. And our suffering is temporary. And God will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. We have hope. We have hope in the midst of all the stuff that's going on in our lives. Our hope is in Christ, and he's going to make things right at the proper time. We're going to get to witness it and be exalted. So this is the hope that we've been looking at, realized. Grace realized, glory revealed, all the sad things made untrue. That's what we're looking forward to. 
hoping Christ finally known completely. The seed of the woman that was promised in Genesis to crush the head of the serpent has come, and the head of the serpent will be crushed completely. The God of all grace does this. The one who calls us to himself, who brings us to him, who preserves us for the greatest experience in the entire universe, knowing his eternal glory that we get to see now through Christ. He's calling. This is the first thing that God does. He calls. It is his calling that brings us to himself. Left to our own, we wouldn't desire him. Our hearts are bent against him, but when our eyes are open, that calling changes from something that grates against us to our greatest desire. This calling opens our eyes to see grace in a completely new light. But before our eyes are open, before that calling, grace looks like weakness. It looks like foolishness to us. Transformation of our hearts change our vision to see what is invisible to everyone else. This is like a superpower. You know, Superman can see through walls. We look out into reality and we can see real hope in the midst of of all the tragedy that's around us. The rest of the world doesn't see that. Superman can see through walls, but if he's not called to come to Christ, he can't see the grace that's right in front of him. If God has opened your eyes to see this grace, then you are among the most blessed people in the world. So then we have this four-word list. Restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish. Restore. He's going to pick us up and bring us back to the state where we need to be. We've all fallen. We're all going to fall again. But God has promised to restore us every time in our repentance. Confirm. He's restored. We can now stand before God who reminds us that we are his children and that he loves us. Strengthen. He's going to give us what is not ours to be ours as we stand. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, one of my favorite verses. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Strength that's not mine becomes mine. Then establish. He's giving us a place in his story to be his witness, to be his proclaimer of the grace we found in him and the glory that he is due. All four of these words being used together to make one emphatic point, God will cause you to succeed, to triumph under pressure, to finish well in the midst of suffering, and he's going to do it for us. That's what he does. He calls us, he equips us, and when the going gets tough, he has promised, has he not, to strengthen us, to help us, to uphold us by his righteous right hand. Our suffering is temporary. Our suffering is temporary. 70 years feels like a long time. But it is temporary. Eternity is huge. This life is tiny. Restored, confirmed, strengthened, and established in him. Safe. We are living in a situation now that will one day cease. It will end because this isn't the way God wants it to be. 
this earth the way it is right now, the sin that we deal with, the temptations that are around us, the anxiety that drags us down, he's got something better for us. And he's given us a peek at it in Christ. When Christ comes again, then what we already know now, dimly, will be shown to us with full color, clarity, HD, 4K, HDR, better than life. This is where Peter takes us next in verse 11. It's a verse of praise to God. The glory that this points us to gets us excited, and our response is praise. And Peter says, to him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. The word dominion is about sovereignty and control. It belongs to God, and this is a praise. God is in control. God is sovereign in a world where it looks like the Roman Empire controls everything. Paul re- Peter reassures us, his readers that God is sovereign over all things, including the Emperor Nero. In a world where sinful pursuits, a sexual revolution, political turmoil are everywhere, we have a rock that cannot be shaken. Our hope is in Christ, and it's solid because he has dominion over all things, and that will never change forever and ever. You should read for yourself the last paragraph of these greetings that that Paul gives, these final greetings, verse 12 through 14. It it reinforces everything he's been saying in the entire book about the life of community and faith. He tells the churches to greet one another with a kiss of love. And that brings us to where we are today. In the midst of persecution from the devil, in the midst of struggles and difficulties and anxieties around the world, we are made to be in a community with one another. As I mentioned at the beginning, today is Independence Day. But perhaps we celebrate that in a different light as we see our utter and complete dependence on him. Independence is somewhat of an illusion. We need to depend on God completely, on one another as he has designed us to do, to help our hearts to be turned and focused on who he is. We get to be pointers for one another to look at God. I point to him to remind you. You point to him to remind me. We point to him to remind one another of the great, wonderful, amazing truth that we know in Christ. If you're not a believer today and you want and you, and you feel God calling you to himself, we want to pray for you. We're praying for you now that, that you would come alongside, that you, your eyes would be opened, that you would see the beauty of what Christ did for us on the cross, that he came because of his love for us. He lived the perfect life, life that we can't live. He took our penalty and died, a penalty that we can't survive so that a way could be made for us to be with God eternally. That's the love that he has for us, that he has for you. But he didn't stay dead. He rose again. If you want to know it, and the peace that it brings, 
in the world that's collapsing around you, you want to know that hope that we have in Christ, then we want to pray, pray with you, pray for you, that the Lord would open your eyes. And for those of here who, who already do believe, who are fighting that fight of faith, you know that that fight isn't easy. In fact, it rarely is. The command to be humble ourselves, to be sober-minded and resist the devil sometimes feels like he's asking the impossible. We are a people easily deceived and forgetful. We forget that we're under the mighty hand of God who's protecting us and taking care of us. We buy into the lies that the prowling lion feeds to us. We fall into his trap. The gospel isn't just the good news that saves you. It's the good news that keeps you. The gospel reminds us of the truth that we know. We preach it to ourselves, and we get to remind ourselves of it this morning. So if you are a believer in Christ, there's communion that we get to re-celebrate this covenant community that we live in with Christ. The body is his body that was broken for us. The blood is the blood that was shed for us that makes us right in the face of God. We're going to sing. I'm going to pray. Communion will be open. And if you're a believer, we want you to partake with us. If you're not a believer yet, I'm praying that God would make that work happen to you even now so that you can celebrate together with us. Father, you are good to us. You remind us of your goodness. You have promised to hold us, to keep us, to restore us, to confirm us. And you've made a place for us that we will enjoy eternally. An inheritance that is undefiled. Not damaged. Not spoiling. It's perfectly protected and being kept for us to enjoy for eternity. And we are looking forward to that day. Father, I ask that as we celebrate your body and your blood that you would remind us of who we are as your children made in your image, seeking to live a life that glorifies you above all things. Help us to do that and to point one another to that grace every day. In Jesus' name.